Lord God, your word is powerful and is alive. It is indeed the word of God is Jesus. It is a living word, sharp as a two-edged sword. So God, as we look today at the warnings that Jesus gives to the churches, to the people of God, this, the recipients of this, of this wonderful and strange book, uh, we pray, God, that, um, that in, our, in our really brief overview, that um, the, the, the power and the weight of Jesus' instructions to these churches would really fall upon us, and that we would take seriously uh, the encouragements and the warnings that Jesus gives to these churches. And God, I pray that you would give us the humility, the humility to recognize that um, we could be any one of these churches if it were not for your grace and your continued work in us through your Holy Spirit and the power of your word. So, Lord God, we pray that you would um, strengthen us to faithfulness and strengthen us to overcome. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So last uh, week we looked at um, the, the central thrust uh, and the recipient of, of judgment that Jesus is going to levy during the day of the Lord, and we, can see, we saw that that um, this, this global economic power system that the Bible calls Babylon is really at the, at the heart of, of evil on this earth and really is the, the uh, entity that Christ is warning us, uh, not just his people, but all of the world to come out of because it is drawing us all into, into evil doing and to essentially the worship of of Satan, the adversary of God and the enemy of Jesus Christ. And this week we're coming back to the beginning of the letter. And really, uh, the book of Revelation is, is considered apocalypse, um, which means the revealing of things. An apocalypse is a revealing. Um, but the book starts out in chapter two, after kind of the prologue and introduction, is, is two chapters that are small, letters to churches. There are seven of them that make up these two chapters. And it is kind of Jesus's um, critique. It's his evaluation of, of all of the churches. Uh, in 1994, uh, a gentleman by the name of Hans Kuhn, uh, who was uh, excommunicated from the Catholic Church for his insubordination against the Catholic Church, wrote uh, this book. He is a, he's considered kind of a uh, uh, a global scholar of Christianity and of all world religions. And he wrote a book in 1994 called Christianity. And he offered a critique of all of the Christian traditions. And he argued that Christianity always takes its form in history and culture. And the form that it takes in history and culture is its witness, is its witness. And uh, the scriptures would argue the same thing, 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. The truth is God, the truth is Jesus Christ, but the church is the representation of Jesus and is its, his witness on this earth. And his argument is that the witness of Christianity across the board, regardless of tradition, had come to a point where people are leaving the church because of its compromise with culture and of its failed witness. And he addresses the strengths and weaknesses of the four main branches or traditions of Christianity. So there's Catholicism, which is the, the branch that he had come out of, uh, Orthodox, the Orthodox Church, and then Protestant fundamentalism and evangelicalism, and then Protestant liberalism. And he offers the, he, offer, he says, here's the, here's the strengths of each of these traditions, and here's where each of these traditions is each of these traditions are really failing. And he argues that all of the traditions need to take a step back and return to the essence of Christianity, return to the essence of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And he spends the rest of the book then just explaining kind of the historical unfolding of the different, different uh, eras and paradigms of Christianity that have emerged historically across the globe. He leaves no tradition unevaluated, and he's pretty accurate. And what I really liked is that he didn't say, hey, my tradition is right and everybody else's tradition is wrong. Very powerful and influential book. And Jesus did the same thing 
2,000 years ago. Jesus took a step back, so it's in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, when John was writing this book, and he gave this revelation to the Apostle John, who at his, when, when Jesus was on the earth, John was called the beloved disciple, probably a young man in his, in his late teens. And so he's an old man, and Jesus is returned, he gives him this res- revelation, um, and he presents an evaluation, a report card, so to speak, on all of the churches. All the traditions are represented, and obviously since it's Jesus, he's flawless in his analysis and in his evaluation. And you'd think that it gets super detailed, you know, because if we were to write a report of all of the churches, it'd be huge. I mean, just or even our own church. If you were to sit down and write a report of our own church, you know, what kind of things would you put in? But Jesus keeps it short for each of the seven churches. He hits the main key thrust and, and, and points and looks at what they're doing good generally, looks at what their problems are generally. And he's gracious and loving, but he's also quite severe but he provides hope. And he provides, I think, also a perspective of humility because we tend to get into our traditions and we tend to criticize other traditions and we fail to take a humble position and an evaluative position of our own traditions. And what I love about this, what I love about these, I mean, there's a whole, we could literally preach a whole sermon on each of the seven letters. We're doing all seven today and we're not gonna hit all seven in particular, we're going to look at a, we're going to read a couple of the reports that Jesus gives, um, and we're going to see generally describe it. But Jesus's ultimate concern, Jesus's ultimate concern for his churches, is their witness. How are they representing him? Not only to the people, but to the heavenly realms. The book starts out, John says, I bore witness of what Jesus told me. Jesus is called the faithful witness. And the imagery that we have that I read last week of of Jesus is is that he is walking among the seven lampstands. And the seven lampstands are the churches. And the burning torches that are coming out of the lampstands, the flames, are the Holy Spirit. And so the lampstands are the churches. And they are shining the light of Jesus Christ. They are shining the light of the Holy Spirit and of his testimony into all of the earth. And Jesus is walking among the lampstands, which gives you the image that he is, he is aware of all of what's going on in all of the churches and is able to make this evaluation. And so why seven? Why the number seven? Well, seven represents completeness from a biblical perspective. It began Genesis chapter one. In seven days, God created the heavens and the earth. And so it represents completeness. So the idea of completeness is that um, all of the churches of Jesus Christ are represented here. From 2,000 years ago to today, these seven churches will reflect the strengths and weaknesses that every church or group of churches or the churches in a certain time period have. And we also see that that the, these seven letters represent the destinies for all churches, the destinies. Some of the, some of the churches are at the brink of death as a church, as a church that witnesses Jesus Christ. Some of these churches are doing quite well. And so all of the churches have that as an option, to die, and we often think that it's, it's a bad thing that churches die. Well. It's not a bad thing that churches die if Jesus is killing them. He gives warnings. I will pull my spirit from you and you will no longer be a lampstand. And so the destiny, so we all have to look at this. We could die or we could thrive. We could overcome. And we also see that these individual distinctions of the churches make up the whole, all right? And that all traditions are represented. It is a very common thing, especially for conservative, evangelical, and fundamentalist churches, 
to think that there are no other truth aspects or no other viable representations or witnesses of Jesus Christ in other church traditions. And traditions in the past have thought that as well. I mean, that was a very strong element of the, of the Catholic Church for centuries. It's a strong element in the Orthodox tradition. It's a strong element in, in our tradition. We would be considered uh, evangelical fundamentalists, and the Pentecostals are all grouped into that as well, if you're just looking at these four big traditions. But we need to be really thoughtful of is that if, if, if a church exists and it, it claims Jesus Christ as Lord, all right, it is somehow represented in these seven churches, all right? There are Catholic churches represented in these seven. There are liberal Protestant churches represented in these seven. There are Orthodox churches represented in these seven. There are fundamentalist, Pentecostal, evangelical churches represented in these seven churches all of the traditions. So we need to have a humble perspective. And I know we have a lot of traditions represented here. And so it's helpful to take a step back and see the good of what some traditions have and see the challenges that some traditions have. But each of us as a church and each of us as Christians has to take a step back and think about what is he speaking to us? What things do we need to be taking note of so that we don't end up as a church that dies? Well, the, what I want to show you here at, at kind of uh, the beginning of these seven churches is the structure, all right? I'm a huge, huge fan of literary structure uh, because literary structure teaches us so much about what the author is trying to say. And so, again, it's chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 22. Those are the two chapters that span the content of these evaluations by Jesus on these seven churches. And so... Um, this little structure here is called a chiasm. It's an ancient literary structure uh, that is helping you understand the central key points that the author is trying to make, all right? And so you have chapter two, verse one, beginning with the church at Ephesus, and it goes through um, chapter three, verse 22, the final church, the church at Laodicea. Now, if you work through these, the structure shows some neat things. The first church is Ephesus, okay? And it's at risk of losing Christ. It's one of the two churches that he makes a strong warning. You are almost dead. And if you don't change, I will pull my spirit from you. Right? It's, it would also be the church that most strongly reflects conservative fundamentalism and evangelicalism because these are, this is the Bible, these are the Bible guys. Strong emphasis on doctrine and teaching, okay? But they've lost their first love, Jesus says. We'll get to that in a moment. Then we go to Smyrna, all right? Now, notice number two and number six. Both of these churches are kind, they're not on the end points, not at the beginning, not at the end, and they're not in the middle. And in a chiasm, the things to look for are the things at the beginning, things at the end, and the things at the middle. Well, you have these two churches, number two and number six, that are kind of stuck. They're not the central focus. They're not the end. They're not the beginning. These are the only two churches that are faithful, that have no problems. They're the small, poor, insignificant, persecuted churches. But these are the ones that are doing well. The only two that are doing well. You get to the middle three, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. These churches are all compromised. They're compromised morally. They're compromised uh, spiritually. They, they are practicing idolatry, or some in their midst are practicing idolatry. And these are the bulk these are three out of the seven, and they're at the middle. The final church, Laodicea. Jesus has nothing good to say about Laodicea, but guess what? It's the biggest church, it's the richest church. And it's the uh, second church that he gives the warning, you are almost dead. And so what we can see here in this chiasm is that the majority of the churches of Jesus Christ at most times are going to be compromised churches, some on the brink 
of dying. And that it is a rare thing, it's a rare thing to find a faithful church. And the faithful churches are going to be hard to find. They're going to be hard to see. That's what this chiasm shows. And so it's like, whoa, well, Jesus, I thought you were the overcomer. Jesus, I thought you had the power. Yeah, he does. He does have the power that gives his people the ability to overcome sin and stand against the adversary. But if the churches do not appropriate that power, if they are stuck in Babylon and want to stay in Babylon, they're not going to make it. And unfortunately, that will be the majority of the churches of Jesus Christ. Now, if that's a challenge, that might be something you want to ask Christ about when you see him. Why is it so difficult for the people of God who have believed in his name to stay faithful to the end? It's a hard, hard thing. I want to read uh, two of the churches just kind of as samples so you get the flavor. And there's a common formula. Jesus introduces himself, and he's making some reference or image to the chap chapter 1 where we saw Jesus Christ. And so there's some aspect of Jesus' image in chapter 1 that is related to what the church is going through. Then there's a, a kind of a warning. If there is a warning, two of the churches, there's no warning. There's no problems in two of the churches, all right? Then he commends them for what they're doing well. He tells them how they can overcome and persevere. And a warning that if they don't overcome, here's what's going to befall you. That's the general, general structure for the seven but each one is a, a tad bit different. So we're going to look at, at Smyrna, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And then we're also going to read Pergamum, which is the one right after that. And so Smyrna is, is one of the two faithful churches. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. I think I have this up here. Yeah, here we go. Sorry. <laughs> I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And we get to Pergamum, chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, what, you know, what is, what is really cool about these letters, these, this, is, this is Jesus himself speaking into these churches context and culture and status. To the angel of the church in Pergamon write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So if you remember the imagery from chapter one, Jesus has a sword sticking out of his mouth. His word is cutting and, and, and will destroy, but it also will reveal. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, one of the things that you've got to understand about the churches at this time is that uh, idolatry and pagan religion was tied to government and tied to economics. All right, so if you, if you were uh, a stonemason, because stonemasons have been around for literally thousands of years, my ancestors traced back to stone masonry in this little town called Stoke Subhamden in England that I had the pleasure of visiting a couple of years ago. And he was a stonemason. Stags have been builders for centuries. So if you were a stonemason in ancient Pergamum or Ephesus or Thyatira or whatever, you probably belonged to what they called trade guilds which are like unions today. And if you were in a, and the, the thing is, you had to be in a trade guild because um, you would get work through the trade guild. They would, 
somebody wanting some, some masonry work done, if they wanted to, to build a house or a temple or some roads, they would come to the trade guild and say, hey, we've got some work to do. Okay, just, again, very similar to unions. Um, but these trade guilds, as a part of their membership process um, and continued um, membership so that you would get the benefits of being in the trade guild, required that you would worship idols, worship the emperor, give money, make offerings to these foreign gods because everything was integrated. We live in a very disintegrated culture. We have a very secular culture in terms of, of how we think about God and the world and our success. It's separated, okay? Uh, contrary to what you saw and heard um, on, on Inauguration Day, there is no um, enforcement of any sort of religion or practice of faith in the United States Constitution or in our government. We have people that are in government that have faith, all kinds of faiths, all right? But back then, you had your government and you had your faith and you had your work all tied together, all right? And so when they talk about the throne of Satan, there were temples that, that had thrones for the emperor and thrones for pagan gods, uh, and these were representative of Satan, who is literally the accuser or the adversary. That's what Satan means, the adversary. And so, so Pergamum is like at the center of the adversaries against God and against Jesus Christ. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. It's a story from Numbers. The people of God following Moses... Was, they, they, were, they were going to the promised land that God had provided for them. And if a country was kind to them, Israel was kind to the country, and they would pass through. And, but most of the countries were not hospitable to Israel. And so this one particular man named Balak hired Balaam, who was an Israelite, to prophesy against Israel. And he did it three times. He hired him three times, but every time Balaam said, listen, I, if God doesn't give me a prophecy against Israel, I can't, I can't curse them. I have to bless them. After three unsuccessful attempts, Balak gave up, and Balaam went back and said, hey, listen, I know, how you can, I know how you can mess up the nation. You can marry your daughters to Israel and their sons, and they will begin worshiping foreign gods, and they will engage in sexual immorality. And by golly, that's exactly what happened. You also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So these are just two examples. Two examples. I would encourage you to read through the other five. Uh, I posted the study guide this week that, that I wrote a couple of years ago, a few years ago, and it goes into much more detail about each of the seven letters, and I that study guide that's on the, on the city is good up through about the middle of the book of Revelation. Some of the house churches are going through it. But if you want to study those more in depth, we just don't have time to do it today, and we don't have time to do it throughout the series. But I want to look at kind of an overview, an overview. Each of the churches, well, six of the seven churches has a strength, all of the churches have a problem except two, the second and the sixth, Smyrna and Philadelphia. But I want to look at, uh, just here's a chart that shows the strengths and weaknesses. And then we want to look at um, characteristics of mature overcoming churches and characteristics of churches that are weak and on the verge of death. And so Ephesus, its strength, 
these were the Bible guys. They were opposed to false teachers, false apostles. Very vigilant in terms of Bible teaching, Bible preaching. But Jesus says, you've lost your first love. You've lost your first love. Now, think about when you first came to know Jesus Christ. Think about when you were first filled with a sense of his grace and, and filled with a sense of him removing your shame and your guilt and your dirt and you just felt the, the Holy Spirit come upon you and you realize that God loved you. He indeed loved you and it wasn't just something that you read on the back of a bumper sticker, but you felt it. Think about when you were maybe in love for the first time or when you were first in love with your spouse. Hopefully that was the same time, but that's usually not the case. But think about when you are just infatuated with something and you think about witness. When you're in love with somebody or you are really delighted or infatuated with something, you don't need somebody to come up and prod you. Hey, you need to talk more about this person or you need to talk more about what you love. When you're in love with someone or infatuated about something or really delighting about something, you talk about it. You talk about it too much. And there's not a, not a forcefulness in your speech. It is just bubbling out of you. It's bubbling out of you. Now, hopefully as we mature in Christ, that we develop some wisdom and some winsomeness around how we talk about Jesus and our first love with him. Because we can be silly, we can be too pushy, but here's the point. We can grow really, really mature and really, really knowledgeable of the Bible, but just kind of have a, a stinky attitude and an unloving spirit that isn't very gracious, that isn't very kind, and doesn't reflect a loveliness of knowing Jesus. And that was Ephesus' problem. And this is one of the two that is about to die. Smyrna, no weaknesses, small, enduring witness, being persecuted. One of their members had been killed for the faith. Jesus says, listen, just continue to persevere. It will eventually come to an end, the trials that you're in. Persevere, and you will find eternal life in the midst of the death that you're experiencing. Pergamum, their strength was evangelism and then witness. Their weakness was that they had some, and now it doesn't say the whole church, but they had some in the church that were preaching false teachings, and they were engaged in sexual immorality. And the church as a whole wasn't doing anything to discipline or stop the few. And so the church had a great witness as a whole, and the church as a whole was talking about Jesus and serving one another and really blessing the world. But there was a few. And so this was a church that was having a challenge in really bringing correction to where correction was needed. Thyatira, known for its sacrificial service. These are hard, this is a hard-working church and loving people. Generous with their money, meeting all kinds of pressing needs in, their, in the church family and in the world around them. But again, same problems. False teachers in their midst that, was, that were promoting uh, the worship of other gods and engaging in sexual immorality. Sardis. Sardis was, you probably are familiar with some of these church, churches like Sardis. Sardis was a church that was living off of its reputation in the past, and it had some folks in the church that were probably from an earlier generation. They're the older folks that are still holding on to the faith, but the current generation has kind of lost it. But they're living off the traditions and, relation, and, the, and the reputations of their past. Philadelphia. Again, another church with no weaknesses, but known for its, its mission work and holiness and evangelism and taking opportunities where God provided in what is referred to as an open door. And an open door in the New Testament is always an opportunity to take the witness of the gospel to a new place. And so Philadelphia was really strong in this and had no, had no weaknesses. And Laodicea, the last church, Jesus has no good thing to say about them. 
and they are deceived by their size and they are deceived by their riches. And so when we look at these, these seven churches, at the strengths and weaknesses, there are some things we can see that are enduring qualities of mature churches. The first one is that mature churches hold fast to the teachings of Christ and the apostles. Being a church that has a high focus on the scriptures is critical. All right? That is a strength that Ephesus had. We have to be strong against false teaching. We have to be strong in our teaching and preaching and study ministry. Our group dynamics as a church need to be filled with the richness of the scriptures the Bible teaches us to do. False teachings, okay, regardless of which kind of false teaching, it could be as blatant as Jesus isn't the Son of God who came in the flesh. Okay, that's a false teaching. But a false teaching is also something that has to do with sexuality and gender, which is very prominent in our age. And we can say, what has that got to do with being faithful to Jesus? A ton. I don't have time to get into it now. But anything that you take in Scripture, from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22, if you, if you take and twist and distort, it will somehow get to the point where you're undermining the gospel You're undermining the identity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and you're undermining the redemptive work of God in His people. Sexuality and gender has much to say about who we are as people and what it means to be redeemed from sin. And anytime we say, oh, you know, that's not really sin, what we're doing is saying we're blocking the work of God and the gospel and His redemptive work to to renew us as people. False teaching of any type that contradicts Scripture will eventually lead to idolatry and a rejection of Jesus. Maybe it's not in this generation. This is one of the things that we've got to consider. We are not a church just for us here and now. We are a church for our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids We would love to be a church that's around until Jesus comes back. There aren't very many, like if you go and look at the church of Ephesus or Thessalonica or some of these places, there there aren't churches. These churches died. These churches died. And if we leave the teaching, we will eventually leave Jesus. It may not be this generation. It may not even be our next. It may be the third generation if they don't return. If we start something that diverts from Scripture and the Word of Jesus Christ, it will be undermining our future. Second, strives for maturity and conforming to Jesus Christ. We are serious about putting off sin as individuals, as households, And as a church. So we engage in the work that the scriptures and Jesus tells us to do. Speak the truth to one another in love, which means encouraging them, encouraging one another in Jesus Christ and who we are in Him, so that our hope is in Him, and that we don't see our sin and our shame and our evil and our darkness as as images of ourself, because it's not us. We are in Christ. We have a new self. So that's part of the truth speaking, so that we can do the truth speaking of saying, You've got to put off sin. You've got to put off sexual immorality. You've got to put off anger and malice and rage and lying and stealing and bitterness. Third quality, perseverance and hardship and cultural opposition. We don't have false gods being promoted and forced upon us. We have Babylon, which in Jesus' perspective is always the greatest competitor to him. Money, wealth, power, fame, status. And we're in a culture where we can share the gospel with people. It's just one of a million other things that everybody has the right to believe in. Just don't claim that it's true for everybody. But it's, it's not too hard if you make the effort to befriend and love your neighbor or your coworker, or your classmate. It's not, it's not too hard to get to a point where you can share the gospel with them. 
But we can easily feel like nobody wants to listen to us, so why share? Why communicate the gospel? They just are going to laugh at me or think it's ridiculous. They're not going to hit me. They're not going to put me in jail. They're not going to kill me in our culture. They are in other parts of the world. But we clearly live in a place, especially if you, in in, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, the Twin Cities, any major metropolitan area in the the country as a whole, is not going to be super receptive to the gospel. Again, they're not going to physically hurt you. They're just not going to really take you that serious. Well, we can't let that happen. We can't let that happen. We're called to share the gospel. And it should be coming out of a delightful love that you have for Jesus, not a forced thing. But if you recognize that you're not sharing the gospel, you need to ask yourself, well, where is my first love? And why is it being stifled? Sharing the gospel should be a regular part of what you do. And if you feel like nobody wants to listen to you, that may be the truth. But share the gospel anyway. Get to the point where you, where you have a reputation and, and relationship with people so that it comes from a standpoint of you just being yourself around them and loving them. It may take a few years. It may take a few years. But we're called to share the gospel in the face of opposition we're not a pl- we may become a place where we are persecuted for our faith. That may, that may happen here. Certainly if you go in other places around the world, that is happening. I've worked with, with, with people from, from India and Southeast Asia and Africa. I'm, I'm good, good friends with a church leader in Nigeria that I talked to during the, the Boko Haram attacks and the kidnapping of those girls, those are, those are religiously motivated persecutions. Muslims against Christians, radical Muslims against Christians. And they are living in the face of, of death. There are places like that in the world. And we need to be praying for those people. And if you want to get a sense of it, again, I... I I mentioned it last week, um, Luke Thompson put me on to a book called Silence, and there's a movie that just was released, I think, last week, uh, Liam Neeson stars a Martin Scorsese film, it takes place in the 1600s in, in a little bit of Portugal, but mostly in Japan, and so it's about Catholic missionary work to Japan, and there's all kinds of colonial missions, Catholic issues that are going on in terms of what represents Christianity, but the dynamics of persecution are reflected well. And it would be, uh, I, I would strongly encourage you to, to read that book, go see the movie, to read about what it means to be persecuted for the faith. Um, because it really gives you a picture of what it means to persevere in real opposition, because we really don't have opposition here. Evangelism and church planning. I've already kind of already said that. Engaging in good deeds, meeting pressing needs. Needs in your family, needs in the church, needs in our neighborhoods and cities and countries. This isn't a a quality of what it means to be a mature church. There's not a ton of things. You could memorize these five. Be serious about the scriptures. Be serious against sin. Persevere amidst hardship and persecution and cultural opposition. Be active in your witness and in church planning. And persevere in meeting the pressing needs and being generous with what you have to help others. Those are, those are the five qualities that Jesus picks out in these seven churches that will define a mature church forever. And if you look at the negative things, kind of contrast to those. If you've lost the lighthearted love for Jesus, Peter says you have forgotten his forgiveness of your sins. Chapter 1 of 2 Peter. When, 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 when who God is and what he has done becomes no longer, when, it, when it's just kind of passe, that's a serious place. It's a serious place to be. When, a, when, you, when, when our respect for the scriptures and our, and our reading of the scriptures and studying of the scriptures and preaching and teaching of the scriptures is growing weaker, 
It's a symptom. When being like the world and more appealing to the world is more important than being like Jesus, it's another problem. You know, there, there are people that believe that the goal of the church is to get a lot of people gathered on a Sunday morning, and that is effective. Now, if Jesus blesses a church and makes it big on a Sunday morning, that is great. But Jesus also says that, that in later times, people will gather for themselves large crowds that tell people what they want to hear with a, just a hint of religion, just a hint of Jesus, but it's twisted. It's not the whole thing. We're, we, we are not here to just grow big crowds. We are here to witness Jesus Christ in his fullness and all of his truth. And when it comes to conforming to the world, we've got to pull away from it. And they had, what was going on is that they would say, you know what, we can engage with some of the things going on in the world in order for us to kind of make some connections to them. Yeah, we can eat food sacrificed to idols because there's only one God anyway, and those aren't really idols. Those aren't really gods. They're just pieces of wood and stone and gold. And I can eat food sacrificed to idols. Well, what the world sees is you compromising. What the world sees is, hey, even though they may not believe those idols are gods, they're still worshiping them. And so we have different forms of that. Theology that we believe teachings that we reject so that we can be more politically appealing or politically correct or, or whatever. Another symptom is that the good years are in the past and they were kind of stale. Another symptom. Where our measurement of success equals the world's. If you're rich and big, that must mean you're doing well. Well, the two churches that are doing well in Revelation are poor and small. Those are the only two. Now, we're poor and small. That doesn't mean we are without any weaknesses. Just because you're poor and small doesn't mean you're doing well. There's a lot of poor, small churches that have died. But being big and rich doesn't mean you're doing well. And you don't take seriously Jesus' instructions to correct. And this especially falls on the leaders of the church. If you are not engaged in disciplining people, that are engaged in false teaching or in some sort of ongoing immoral practice that they're not repenting from, that will lead, in Jesus' words, to the rest of the church being corrupted. This isn't a liberal conservative thing. There are a lot of liberal churches that may be low on their respect for the scriptures, but are, are really stellar in their sacrificial efforts to the poor. There are churches that, that do a, a great job in, in standing up um, for Jesus' name amidst persecution, but have some really bad theology. This isn't a conservative thing. It's not a liberal thing. It's not a, a, uh, a, a Pentecostal thing. It's not, it, it, these are traditionless evaluations. They are across the spectrum. And again, churches die because Jesus kills them. Not because he wanted to, but they've stopped being his witness. And so each of these letters concludes, he who has an ear, let him hear, which is a phrase that goes back to the prophets, and it's saying this, the rest of this book, because this is just the introduction, this is the introduction to the, to the rest of the book. The rest of this book is going to be filled with a lot of crazy, weird things that you read through it and you can, you can get to the point where you can quickly just kind of, oh, this stuff is nuts. I'm going to disregard it. It's just like Jesus' parables. Jesus had this little phrase in the, when he was on earth that is reflected in the Gospels, he who has an ear, let him hear. And it's this. It means this. I'm going to say some really hard things because I've been saying a lot of simple things to now and you haven't been listening. Jesus attracted huge crowds at the beginning of his ministry because they liked his provision of food and they liked his healings of their sicknesses. 
But when he started telling them to follow him and to take up their cross and to love their neighbors and to love their enemies, they're like, this guy is increasingly not attractive to me, but he, you know, his lunches are great. And I really like being healed from my sicknesses. And so Jesus said, you know what, I'm going to stop giving you free lunch and I'm going to stop healing your sicknesses. And I'm going to start talking to you in really confusing statements. Because if you're really pursuing truth and if you're really pursuing God and if you're really pursuing eternal life, you'll work through the difficult statements. You'll work through the weird imagery of the parables or you'll work through the weird imagery of the rest of the book of Revelation and it gets nuts. If you're really pursuing God and not just a free lunch, you'll work through the challenges. And so he's presenting this to the churches. This is going to take work. But if you really love me and you really want to know me and you really want eternal life, and if you want to be saved from the judgment that I'm going to unfold, then you need to hear and you need to overcome. And most of the admonitions to overcome is just like, hey, go back and do the things that you did at the beginning. Start correcting and disciplining the people in your midst that are engaged in unrepenting sexual immorality and, and accepting and worshiping other gods and other false teachings. Now, it's not super complex, but it's having the courage to stand against Babylon. For us, it is going to be money. It's going to be the biggest challenge that we have. We are a rich country. We are a rich people. I was so encouraged by seeing the, if you didn't see the year-end update from the finance team, uh, we, were, we, we, we were short of meeting our budget by about 600 bucks, which was great. But we're still in the black because we spent about 1,500 less than we took in. But what was really encouraging is that we, we, we as a church gave a little over $110,000 to needs outside of the church. The jail ministry, church planning through Acts 29, and they're sending church planners into places around the world where there is no Christian witness, there is no Christian gospel, there is no church. We're supporting those efforts. We're supporting those men and women and their families going into those places. We're supporting work in, in Portugal and Mozambique, church planning and evangelism, leadership development, and church planters. That's a third of our budget that we are just giving away to things outside of our, that was really encouraging to me, really encouraging to the elders. Our greatest temptation in the face of Babylon is not putting our material success, our wealth, our status, our position in this world, okay? It doesn't mean we can't be wealthy. It doesn't mean we can't, it, it's, it's what do we love? If you're really wealthy, Paul says, hey, enjoy what God has given you and be super generous. Okay, then call everybody to give all of their money to the poor. It's just, what are we loving? And that's where we've got to keep our first love on Jesus. And really, at the conclusion of all these letters, there's something about Jesus that, they, that, that is being brought up to contrast the struggle that the churches are facing. Jesus is our identity and name. We don't get it from our popular culture. We don't need to be held up by the world around us as being great. Jesus has given us his name, and Jesus will make us great. Jesus is our food. So when, we're, when we are not getting work, okay, this was back then, they would, they would not get work because of their faith in Jesus, and they would not get paid because of their faith in Jesus, and their families would go without food because of their faith in Jesus. Jesus says, listen, I am your food. I am your food. I will sustain you. And if you die, it's okay, because you have already died, and this first death will not harm you. But if the first death is more important to you, then the second death, and the second death is the judgment seat of God, and we'll spend a whole sermon on it. If you're more worried about your material life right now and not concerned about your eternal life, then Jesus cannot sustain you because you're looking for the world. Jesus is your wealth. When you have no resources, Jesus is your wealth, and some of the churches experience that. Jesus is your joy when the circumstances of the world have gone against you. Jesus is your protection and strength when you're in prison and in jail. 
Again, we we don't have most of these things as challenges. Again, the greatest challenge for us is just is us kind of just drifting into a casual, middle-class comfortability. And we're Christians. We have an opportunity to witness, and we have an opportunity to give. And I think we have an open door with what's going on in the jails. And at a future date, Tim and Seth will come in and share more about that. It's really unique, and it's really amazing, and it's a great witness. That's really an opportunity that we have. We have an opportunity to witness and to just resist loving money. Because Jesus is our life. Jesus is our life because the, our, our homes, our wealth, our cars, our status in the world, our comforts, our televisions, and all of the things that a Western culture does to distract us. You know what? We're still really unsatisfied. We're still really unsatisfied. The worship team was practicing this morning. I can't remember which song it was. Uh, I can't remember the title, but it was just this phrase. And you will reign forever. And it was just echoing through the hallways. And it just reminded me of some of the images in Revelation of, of millions and millions and millions of God's people worshiping God. And you know what worship him? I mean, we think about, oh, why would I want to be in heaven and worship him like 24 hours a day, seven days a week for eternity? You know, it's not like a forced worship. We worship things all the time that we aren't compelled to worship. We, when we sit in awe and just like, wow, isn't that great or isn't that beautiful? That's worship. We will be so enthralled that that's just what we're going to do because it's just it's so compelling. The beauty and the power of God will be so compelling. And that is the fullness, really, that God promises now for us if we love him, if we love him. Let me pray. Lord God, uh, thank you for these, these, uh, these really strong and powerful letters and for the strong and powerful words of Jesus. Uh, God, um, help us to resist Babylon. God, if persecution comes, violence comes, which I, I do know that there are some folks, friends with past, that are pastors of churches here in the States that, that have suffered some persecution cars have been burnt, their families have been harassed, but God, by and large, we don't suffer these things. So God, help us to stay vigilant in, in, against apathy and complacency. Help us to stay vigilant against the temptations of Babylon. In Christ's name, amen.